As always, we're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every individual, our membership at Pippin, the visitors who've come our way this day. We're certainly delighted and hopeful that each of us can be strengthened in our service to the Lord and our appreciation of His way this morning. In fact, as we've come together on this occasion, already the songs that we've sung have been tremendous in their power. The prayer in which we also collectively engaged was a tremendous statement of our consideration and faith in God. And of course, now for the next few moments, may I invite you to open the Word of God with me as we give thought to the mathematics of the Bible. Bible math is the title of the lesson this morning. As we look at some of the features of mathematics, it may be that our students aren't always that excited and thrilled about math class. It may be from time to time that they prefer other subjects to math. But it is true, isn't it, that mathematics is important and when it comes to the Bible, in fact, it is essential. Isn't it amazing that even in the Word of God, there is a number of references to, in fact, mathematics. And so for the next few moments this morning, I would invite us to also think about math in the Bible. And as we do that, we'll be reminded of some of the greatest truths in all of existence. Some of the thoughts of introduction, in fact, might be these. Some of those things that when you and I consider as it relates to math are adding and subtracting, multiplying and dividing, and those truths, in fact, occur in the Bible. I wonder in what way they occur. In what way does God teach us about the importance of proper consideration of those things? We shall see in just a few moments. It's also true that even when it comes to the most basic truths of the church, mathematics is important. Not only do our youngsters need to know that, but we even as those older need to know some basic math as it relates to the church. Let's begin our study then by noting the occurrence of some numbers in the Bible. Since one makes reference to numbers as it relates to math, it's important to note God's usage of numbers. It's clear that numbers are very important to God and that numbers convey needful and vital truth. Just look at a few of the occurrences of these special numbers. The number one. The Bible frequently presents the basic truth of one. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, one of the greatest of the commandments the ancient Israelites was to appreciate was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That basic fact they were never to forget. And the number one was uniquely associated to the absolute existence and greatness of God. But is it any different in the New Testament? In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The number one is absolutely essential. Its appreciation must never be misunderstood. There is one God. You'll also notice that in that recognition of one, God, through the nature of the Son, prayed that all of us might be one. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, on the night just prior to His crucifixion, Jesus had these words to say. He was praying to the Father and He said, In that prayer, neither pray I for these alone, but for all of them also which shall believe on Me through their word that they all may be one even as Thou, Father, art in me, and I in Thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. John 17, verses 20 and 21. 
Is there any question then about the importance of the number one? One God, one church, one baptism, and one faith. And yet he also prayed that all of us would be one. But one isn't the only number, of course, of occurrence in the Bible. I've also asked that you give thought with me to the number seven. The number seven identifies heavenly perfection, divine truth, and completeness. We remember that God created everything in six days of masterful creation, but then rested the seventh day and thus came into existence that time period we call a week. Isn't it still fantastic? The characteristic of a week wasn't dreamt up by some ancient scholar. It wasn't dreamt up by some committee of ancient philosophers. God determined this time period we call a week. And it has remained in thorough existence ever since. The week. You'll notice also in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, mention is made of six things, yea, seven things that God hates. Of that list, we notice that that is thus a description of this completeness with regard to human character. Seven things that God hates. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there were seven congregations or seven churches in Asia. Perhaps we've already noted enough then. That reminds us that this number seven occurs often in the Bible. There are other numbers as well. Even beyond the numbers one and seven, the number ten. How many initial commandments did God give ancient Israel? Ten, the ten commandments. We notice that those were so special that the finger of God wrote them on a stone tablet and they were presented by Moses to the children of Israel. And today we still appreciate that almost all of them were carried over into the New Testament. Ten commandments. But you'll notice there were other occurrences of the number ten. In Revelation 13, 1, how many horns did the great dragon of that chapter have? Ten. And that alone is an element of significance. In that it shows the great power and thoroughness with which that beast was going to be able to present difficulty to the human family. Ten. What about another number, the number 40? So often the number 40 occurs. It rained 40 days and 40 nights in the great days of the Noahic flood, Genesis chapter 7. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Exodus 24. Jesus also fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew chapter 4. Those things highlight to us that number 40 presents great biblical truth. We could continue this listing for a long time. Perhaps one final set of numbers, the number 144,000, occurring both in Revelation chapters 7 and chapter 14. That number simply presents this. It's a large number. It shows to us the fact that all who are proper and ready to be in heaven will be there. God will not exclude anyone who has lived faithfully, who has in fact done the commandments of God, and who have prepared him or herself for that great day of judgment. I might say in light of all of that, numbers are important in the Bible. We must have an appreciation for them. Otherwise, we will miss so much of the truth that God is presenting to us. It is with that in mind, one final thought. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is given of inspiration of God. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If it is the case that all Scripture is inspired and Scripture contains numbers, does that not then mean that these numbers found in the Bible are inspired and God has truth in them for us to appreciate? It is with that in mind, I would invite us to think about God's usage of some numbers and how that it has a great meaning for your life and mine in Christ. Let's begin the following way by looking at some of the ways these numbers are combined. Addition. One of the first things that a child in about kindergarten or first grade perhaps learns to do is add some numbers. Two plus one is three. Three plus two is five. And as they learn to master the numbers, might I suggest God has some important addition for us to know too. Please note with me some of these thoughts. God absolutely commands of you and me as Christians that there are some things we must add, else we will not be found right in His sight. What are some of these things to be added? In 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse number 5, we find the following set of ideas and commandments given. Interestingly, it begins, and note the usage of the word add. Wherefore, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That's reading through verse number 10 of Second Peter 1. We notice that one of the first matters in chapter 5, add. You and I as Christians are given the obligation to add these things to our life. We need to add faith. And as we build on that, we need to thus add virtue. That means good, wholesome, moral excellence. Approve what's right, shun what's evil. But beyond that, he says, add knowledge. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans, 1, Romans 10, 17. We thus need to be adding increased knowledge and appreciation for this book. Are we doing that? Beyond that knowledge, he says, we're to add some other things, such as godliness. Is your life and mine a hallmark of wholesome, sound, godly Christian living? Or when others look at us, do they say, hmm, Christian doesn't have any business going there. Christian doesn't need to be talking like that. Christian, they need to be wearing that kind of clothes. Our life is an open testament to everyone around us, and in us, they should see the truth of the Bible's numbers about adding things godly. Notice he also says patience. Do you and I add patience as we should? Or is that a matter of troublesome character? Are we too impatient in such a sense that we don't, don't endure to the end? Do we quit and give up too quickly and easily? Beyond those matters, of course, the list closes with love. Are we those who add love to the extent that others can see it embodied in the way that we live? Notice again, add, and that is a commandment. 
Beyond that, we notice some other things. God adds. Matthew 6.33, there Jesus in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Notice there, the addition is not done by you and me, but God has promised to add some things to your life and mine. And those things He's promised to add, of course, are the physical necessities. The context identifies things like food, things like raiment and shelter. God has promised to add those things if you and I will follow Him faithfully. Isn't it a grand thing to notice God there does the addition? I would invite you to notice that there's perhaps one more thing of careful emphasis to us. God has commanded us not to add in some ways specifically to do with His Word. We must never add to it. In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, He says, "...add thou not unto His Word." In other words, we are thus placed in position that if we do the dastardly deed of adding to His Word, we put ourselves in position to receive all the wrath of those plagues unfolded in the book of Revelation. For in Revelation 22, verses 19 and 20, He especially says that those who add to this book shall have to them added the plagues that are written therein. Those plagues are full of wrath. They're full of terrible intensity. They're full of the receipt of all the terror that God reserves for those that are unfaithful. May we thus never add to His Word. You'll notice that the concept of addition has thus occurred fairly often. Why not we give some thought to subtraction? God's Word also has reference to that as well. You'll notice, though, that the word subtract does not occur verbatim in the Greek or Hebrew text anywhere. But the thought behind it occurs frequently as the translation in words like these. Put away, lay aside, lay apart, put off. In other words, there are certain things that are to be removed. And that's the idea behind subtraction, isn't it? Ten minus six is four. So if one removes six from ten, you're left with four. What about this concept of subtraction? Look with me at some of its appearances. Again, it is absolutely commanded in certain places. For instance, in Ephesians 4.31, the inspired apostle there writing says, Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. That's a direct commandment to all of us, isn't it? There is no business for wrath, undue wrath, undue clamor, undue evil speaking. None of that ought to be present in the life of the one devoted and dedicated to the God of heaven. Those things, it is commanded of us, put them away. In Colossians 3.8, Paul also, same writer, lists another inspired presentation. This time he simply says, certain things are to be put off. There's that word, the idea behind subtraction again. You'll notice the list again contains things like filthy communication. We might pause and ask, do we not live in a world where communication so often is filthy? We read about it in certain kinds of magazines. Perhaps we should lay those aside and not have anything to do with them. 
We also, though, hear it so frequently. Those who take God's name in vain. Those who take various and sundry sacred things and speak of them in a filthy way. Those who just in their common conversation speak in such an ugly, vulgar tone. We note, as Paul says on many occasions, put those away. We in Christ ought to have a pristine, pure speech. Colossians 4, 6 reads it like this, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Salt has a preserving character, as we all know. Maybe we remember our grandparents curing ham with salt. Question, does your speech and mine seek to preserve and uphold those around us because they hear purity in our speech? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Our language ought to minister grace to those who hear us. If it doesn't, it ought not be said. If it doesn't, it ought to be left aside, or at least rephrased in such a way that it does minister grace. We notice then certain things are to be subtracted from our life. One of them, We've noted so far from these inspired listings, but perhaps another one. From James 1, verse 21. James, in the midst of that inspired presentation, said, Wherefore, laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, let us receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Did you notice as the verse began, Wherefore, laying apart, there's that concept of subtraction, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. What about filthiness? Do we allow that in our life too much? Perhaps by the things we watch on TV, by the things in which we allow association to take place. James says, lay it apart, set it aside, subtract and remove it. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, another inspired writer joins the chorus of this discussion. Peter, writing on that occasion, says, Wherefore, brethren, laying apart, and he then lists five elements. Among these are the following. He presents the notion of laying apart malice, laying apart evil speakings, laying apart various and sundry ideas of sinfulness. Isn't it clear then that God's interested in subtraction and He's interested in all of us subtracting these ideas? You'll notice, though, that subtraction also appears in another way. Again, we are commanded never to subtract in another way. It has to do with this book again. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, we must not subtract from this book. Never take anything from it. Never remove any of what God has revealed. Never set aside anything that God has set forth. For again, if we do, we're promised in Revelation 22 that our name will be subtracted from the Lamb's book of life. Perhaps the challenge as we think about addition and subtraction is to notice that these concepts with which we're so familiar appear identically in the presentation of God's inspired truth. What about multiplication? We also notice that that too is something that our children are encouraged to learn and in order to be a productive citizen, there is some degree of multiplication that they must understand. It is also that way in the Bible. I would invite you to notice these comments with me. 
when God uses the word multiplication or the word multiply, He has in thought the concept of explosive growth or at least significant growth. When something becomes far more than it once was, it is said to have been multiplied. For that reason, consider these concepts with me. Sometimes that word is used with respect to people. The children of Israel numbered only 70 when they went into the land of Egypt. Exodus 1, verses 2 and following. However, when they came out, the fighting men alone numbered 603,550. The text says they multiplied. Do we gain the sense to go from a mere number of far less than 70 in terms of men to 603,000, they multiplied. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, the thought is explicitly said God multiplied them. But as you and I apply that in the New Testament, it's used in a similar way in this way. What about the early Christians? They multiplied. Look with me at this reading in Acts 6 verse number 7. On that occasion, it simply says that as the gospel was preached in Jerusalem, the disciples multiplied greatly. They heard the gospel. They responded in faith to it. They became Christians and the church grew explosively. Brother Adam read for us from Acts 16 verse 5 earlier in the lesson text. We notice one more time the church increased valiantly. Might it not be so today? Do we not desire for individuals to hear the truth and respond to it in faith? Do we not desire that their souls be saved because they've come to know the only thing that can save it and the only thing through which salvation can come? The church of which we read in the book of Acts is a church that multiplied greatly. They knew well about the process of multiplication. In fact, as you notice, that led me to appreciate that there's one other thought we need to consider about multiplication, then we'll revisit this point perhaps more carefully. It's also the possibility that sin can multiply. Now that is a terrible thing to consider. But isn't it true from time to time in the Word of God, sins and iniquities multiplied. Look at these examples with me. In Isaiah 59, 12, that noble prophet of old Directly speaking for God said, Your transgressions have multiplied. God addressed some of His own people and said, Your transgressions are not just few in number, but they have become multiplied in character. It is a sad, sad thing to consider when sin multiplies. And yet I fear that in some ways we are seeing it all about us in our land. Homosexuality is far more than it was a decade or a century ago. Other sins seeming, seemingly are becoming far more common and accepted. And in that sense, sin is multiplying. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we notice that fornication multiplied. Is that not also happening about us? When individuals live together without being married... Those who in fact divorce and then remarry and do so without the authority of the Word of God, they're then living in an adulterous, fornicating situation. Fornication is multiplying. God isn't happy with that arrangement. For God wants purity, character in life in which those sins have been subtracted, not multiplied. 
And yet the multiplication is a frighteningly apparent thing in so many cases, isn't it? As you think about one other passage in Amos, the fourth chapter, verse 4, we notice there that even sin multiplied in worship. Now I would ask that you think about that, and perhaps a lesson in the weeks to come is going to more thoroughly consider it, but isn't that a frightening thing when folks come together and there's multiplication of sin in worship? And yet it happened in Amos 4. I wonder if that could happen today. We have every assurance in Scripture it can and does. Might I invite us to think then that we must be very careful to multiply the good things that God has given us and never, ever multiply the sins. Because when we do, we of course drive ourselves further from the faithfulness and the purity that God would have us to know. Multiplication, perhaps in the final way, might bring us back to that early church I mentioned earlier. The early church, those saints of which we read in the book of Acts, they weren't interested in multiplying sin. They were interested in multiplying converts to Christ. No wonder the early church grew by leaps and bounds. Acts 8 verse 4 says that they went everywhere preaching the Word. And as they did so, Acts 12 24 tells us that the Word of God increased and multiplied. Here's what they multiplied, not by adding to it, but by preaching it, sharing it, and living it. And as they did, others heard it and responded in faith. There were approximately 3,000 who became Christians on the day of Pentecost. Two chapters later, the number had already grown to 5,000. Isn't that amazing? Acts 4 verse 2. Today, might we not see then that we could grow at Pippin even more so as we preach and proclaim the Word Currently, we strive to proclaim it by way of radio, by way of the pulpit, by way of the lives that we live, and perhaps by the blessing of God. Individuals who need to respond to that truth will become available to it, hear it, and quickly, and quickly respond in faith to it. That would be explosive multiplication, wouldn't it? As you think about multiplication in that regard, let's come to division. We know that dividing numbers is important. Just as surely as eight divided by four is two, and our children learn that, God also talks about division. I would invite you to think with me that there are two ways that the concept of division seems to appear in the sacred scriptures. One of them is the following, that notion of separations or factions. When a group of people is divided, there's one part against another. They're separated in the sense that they're opposed to each other. We notice that that in regard to the church is not good. But there's also a usage by way of division in terms of handling something correctly. Let's talk about both of them in the following way. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the inspired writer says, "...study to show thyself approved unto God." a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That usage is the second one in the list. Handling something correctly, handling it properly, handling it appropriately. And thus you and I are admonished to ever handle correctly with right interpretation the things that God has revealed in His Word. And thus we must divide in that sense. Notice that division is commanded in that regard. But you'll notice that division is something we're commanded not to do in this other passage. 
Look with me at these commandments. In Romans 16, verse 17, we're there expressly told to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. And so there, division's a bad thing. You'll notice that there, those that were causing divisions were causing them because they didn't understand and know the truth. Thus, if we know the truth, we're committed to the truth, and we are dedicated to living it, we won't be the ones responsible for causing divisions like that. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, a church that was beset with divisions, it was to them, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. One more time, notice divisions were condemned. Isn't it thus a sorely sad thing in the halls of heaven as God looks upon the current state of humanity and sees so much division amongst those who call themselves Christians? It was never intended by God to be so. As you give thought to these concepts of division, doesn't it challenge us here at Pippin, though, to be united in the faith, that we may be one as the thing for which Christ prayed, and that there be no divisions among us? Those thoughts about division, multiplication, subtraction, and addition bring us to perhaps one more numerical application of these things today. Numbers have order to them. One is followed by two, which is followed by three, and so on down the list. And our, num and our children, when they learn to count, it's such an exciting thing to us who are parents. But you'll notice that God uses the numbers also to emphasize order. Consider these thoughts with me. The notion of order is seen so apparently as you and I look at the Bible. Didn't God tell Hezekiah on one occasion through the prophet Isaiah, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. There's the notion of order. Hezekiah, get ready. Set your house in order. And isn't it true that God is always interested in your house and mine being in order? That also means His house, the church, needs to be maintained in order, doesn't it? Look at these examples of those thoughts. The priority set forth in Psalm 27.4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. There is, you see, a priority to life, and if we miss that, quite frankly, we have missed everything. To die and leave this world unprepared means we forfeited any hope for heaven. You see, priority is essential. No wonder Haggai said in Haggai 1 verse 6, Consider your ways. That lesson is as needful today as it was the day Haggai wrote it. Consider your ways, Randy, and put your name in the sentence too. That verse goes on to say, Israel, you have earned wages and put them in a bag with holes in it. Are you and I doing that? Earning wages, earning matters in life, but putting them in a bag with holes so that they're waste being wasted? We need to consider our ways to set our house in order as well. As you can see, the notion of propriety fits into this concept of order. Isn't it true that God expressly said, Let all things be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. 
No wonder we strive to carry out these services in a way that's not only decent, but in a way that highlights God's established order. The numbers of the Bible teach us that truth. Order is important. Propriety and appropriateness is essential. Beyond that, we notice this concept. 1 Corinthians 11.3 reminds us of the great hierarchy. God to Christ, to man to woman. That hierarchy is what God has taught us. And as we respect it, we appreciate that is God's established considered order. And in its application, we find that God uses it greatly in 1 Corinthians 11 to teach us about woman's submission to man in terms of the husband-wife relationship and otherwise. Isn't it true then that this order as seen in the numbers is in fact such a vital truth that we'll use it to close our lesson in this way? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we notice a picture of the second coming of Christ. And it says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's something about order. You then and I know that even on that day, it won't be chaotic. It won't be filled with anarchy. Things will happen in the order that God has so decreed from heaven that they shall be. Today then, I suppose that asks us this thought that closes the lesson. The numbers in the Bible and the operations that God has taught us, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, they are essential that we apply them correctly. Are you and I adding to our life the Christian graces? Are we subtracting from our life the things God has condemned? Are we multiplying those good things such as our knowledge of the Word and our access to those that we hope would become Christians? Are we dividing as we should by rightly dividing the truth of God? In terms of order, are we thus ordering our life in the way that God has found pleasing and commanded? Today, if you're not a Christian, why not? Jesus went to an old rugged cross about 20 centuries ago for you. He took your place on that cross and paid the price for your sins. He shed His innocent blood that you might have the opportunity to be redeemed. Redeemed, bought back from a world of sin. Don't be overwhelmed to multiply sin, but rather erase sin by using the blood of Christ and come back to the nature of the cross. Today, if you need to respond in faith, why delay? Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If you hear His voice, harden not your heart, Hebrews chapter 3 tells us. If you need to respond in that way today, recognize that baptism has these prerequisites. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. This is the order that's spoken of in the New Testament. You must also confess the sweet name of Jesus as a Son of God. Upon so doing, in faith, those matters you then are a subject that is a candidate for baptism. And we'd be more than honored to assist you in that way. If you have become baptized, that is to say, you became a member of the body of Christ, but at this point in life you are not faithful. You have, in fact, failed to add, subtract, multiply, or divide as God commanded. Why not make things right today? Come back to your first love and let us pray to God on your behalf under the example of Acts the 8th chapter. If we could help you in either of those ways today, the invitation is extended to you and we would urge you to come while together we stand and while we sing.